everyone. Welcome back to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled today to be sitting down again with Mr. Jimmy Song. And we're actually doing a little bit of backtracking. So we had started with chapter one of the book by Hoppe titled Democracy, the God that Failed. Uh, but Jimmy, you pointed out to me that the introduction contains some real gems as well. Um, so we're going to jump back into the introduction of the book, actually, and start with this exploration of empiricism versus rationalism, or I guess what we could say is a priori knowledge, which we'll explain and define versus uh, experimentally derived or empirically derived knowledge. Um, so I'm going to start, I'll just read an excerpt from the book, and then we'll, we'll open the discussion with that. Hoppe says, quote, if one is to make a rational choice among such rival and incompatible interpretations, this is only possible if one has a theory at one's disposal, or at least a theoretical proposition, whose validity does not depend on historical experience, but can be established a priori, i.e. once and for all by means of the intellectual apprehension or comprehension of the nature of things, unquote. So just to start there, I mean, the way he's describing this in my mind is um, you have to have a philosophical anchoring into the world that's intellectually derived before you can interpret your observations. Mm. Whereas in the modern world, we tend to think the reverse. It's like we need to observe it and through experimentation first to prove it, quote unquote, before it's real. Mm. Yeah, and this is uh, a lot of Austrian economics, actually, is uh, looking, at, and he points this out in the introduction, where you look at historical events, and for a lot of historians, they don't understand economics, they don't necessarily have a good grounding, so they just sort of describe what happened, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, this many people were killed at this battle, and, you know, the economy uh, tanked by this much on this date, or something like that, and his point is that, well, that's good and fine, but it doesn't give you any satisfying like reasoning for what, what actually happened when. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only way to really get that or to inject meaning into these events is to have some sort of framework by which you can actually view it. And the problem with pure empiricism or a denial of sort of metaphysical reality is that you don't have that grounding. You don't have anything to anchor these events to. So it, none of these events have any meaning in of themselves. It's mm -hmm. it, And you sort of like are trying to create meaning out of nothing. I think the thing you said right before we started was, you know, these people are trying to make ought from is and they mm -hmm. can't do it, right? Like it's okay. What conclusions can you draw from just observation and facts um you you need if you want to be guided by it if you want it to make it useful you you need some grounding in something else first or a priori knowledge uh which is latin for from before right like it's mm -hmm. it's uh before any observations are made these are the things that you can axiomatically determine in mathematics this would be you know the uh the postulate uh, the the axioms the um axioms of set theory, stuff like there exists an empty set. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, there exists, uh, if you combine two sets, then it's, or 
if the sets have the same exact elements, they're equal, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. the, those are axioms. And if you use those, you can build up to mo uh, most of, I, I think all of modern mathematics. Um, in, a in, in the same way, you need some axioms, if you will, of economics to make sense of everything. If you if you are relying purely on empiricism, it just like there's nowhere to go. There there's mm -hmm. no uh, nothing to measure anything by. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. Um, uh, the a priori word, I think this one throws a lot of people for a loop because it's just not mm -hmm. something we commonly use. But I think you defined it well, where it just means whatever piece of knowledge there are no priors for like a priori without priors. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe another way to interpret this is as the axiomatic assumptions mm -hmm. through which we're filtering our observations. You know, it, it's, we see things in the world, we see history unfolding. We've, we've made observations through the scientific method or, or just direct experiential observation and then we need to, to understand what they are, the meaning. They actually have to be filtered through some philosophy even. I mean, again, if we, if we say philosophy is an inquiry into the fundamental nature of things, philosophy is kind of intended to get to these a priori's in, in some sense. So I think the author, he does a good job explaining what we're trying to say here. So I'm going to read another excerpt that I think really brings it home. He says, quote, examples of what I mean by a priori theory are no material thing can be in two places at once. No two objects can occupy the same place. A straight line is the shortest line between two points. No two straight lines can enclose a space. Whatever object is red all over cannot be green or blue or yellow, etc. all over. Whatever object is colored is also extended. Whatever object has shape also has size. If A is a part of B and B is a part of C, then A is a part of C. Four equals three plus one. Six equals two times 33 minus 30. Implausibly, empiricists must denigrate such propositions as mere linguistic syn syntactic conventions without any empirical content, i.e. empty tautologies. In contrast to this view and in accordance with common sense, I understand the same propositions as asserting some simple but fundamental truths about the structure of reality. And in accordance with common sense, too, I would regard someone who wanted to test these propositions or who reported facts contradicting or deviating from them as confused. And the key point here, a priori theory trumps and corrects experience and logic overrules observation, not vice versa. Mm. And this paragraph to me, it just sums it up so nicely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there appears to be something metaphysical, something beyond words and space and time that we can't access with language and knowledge, really. There, there's, there's an epistemic finitude, let's say. Mm -hmm. But a priori knowledge seems to be the closest thing we can get to that. Mm. And then through that filter of, and this is, this is what we, I, we, I believe he calls and I've been calling rationalism versus mm -hmm. empiricism. That is the filter through which we can interpret 
the observations we make through empiricism. Mm. Uh, and this is something like he mentioned as a, in a number of examples here, it's very fundamental to mathematics and mathematics is the most powerful language, most powerful tool or, or psychotechnology we have in the world. Mm. Yeah. It, it's a part of, um, you know, what, what he calls like this describes a fundamental nature of reality. And this is where we get the idea of metaphysics, like metaphysics as in the physics of physics, right? Like it's mm -hmm. yeah. like uh, it describes reality and there's there are rules to describing reality, some, something mm -hmm. to that effect. Um, and that that's what he's saying are, are these axioms or these fundamental truths that you can kind of like uh, observe and use logic to extend uh, to mm -hmm. other uh, things and uh, as a way to interpret some of these events that you observe. Because without them, you really get to sort of like a fundamentally reductionist sort of worldview where there is only the world and that is it. And in that case, like, you, it, it, it's a very confused sort of like view of the world, like you said, mm -hmm. where you don't have any sort of anything other than the world. And that, that makes thinking about it like near impossible because there mm -hmm. isn't anything other than what already exists. It's a profoundly like nihilistic view of the world almost uh, because yeah. there is no meaning, there is nothing. And if there is nothing outside of what exists in our sensory experience, then you come to a very um, depressing philosophy. Uh, now, that's just one of the consequences, but yeah. it also makes it so that everything else that you derive out of it has no meaning or any sense. Um, you need a metaphysic in order to make interpretations of the physical world other uh, like it, it otherwise there's no meaning period it's there there is no like alternative than having some sort of description of reality that corresponds to reality itself mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so i i think that's a great point is that if you're just taking a purely empirical view of reality you you end up stuck in this clockwork Newtonian universe mm. that's just purely mechanical and meaningless, right? So we mm. can't we can use that to describe you know observations in reality, but you can't get anything of value out of that. We can't determine what action to take in response to that. Really, you end up with just as you said this very nihilistic view on the world. Um, and that seems to be pretty common with atheists, actually, is that they they do think that way. They think that it's purely, you know, an atomized, mechanical, purely material, physical universe that we're in, um, which is funny because if you actually go to the bottom of modern science, you find that's not true at all. Like if you get into quantum mechanics, there is there is no material. Everything is in flux and probabilistic and energy. So um is that where we're at today that we've just, you know, clearly it's been a very, empiricism has been a very powerful tool. We've developed a lot of technological prowess as a result of it, but maybe we've entangled our, our life philosophy with that to some extent to where we have this, you know, atheistic and nihilistic um, culture emerging in the world. 
Yeah, um, it, there, there's definitely sort of like a, an easiness to accepting empirical data that that a priori reasoned logic is is a little harder to accept because you have to think a lot more, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think the way like uh, Jacques Lull um, describes it is, uh, you know, like to derive logic or de- derive a pri- uh, from a priori truth down to something and do that, it, it requires a lot of, um, you know, a very a very slow and methodical examination of the statements and then the reasoning and then you you get to this other truth and then you can you can interpret things whereas with empirical observation um it is just you are presented with the fact and that's it It, you you don't really argue with fact there's nothing to wrestle with so Mm. for a lot of people i i think it's a form of intellectual laziness to just accept the empirical data rather than to go back to sort of like first principles and reason through to the conclusions that that you may come to. Um, It's just a lot easier uh, from like an intellectual perspective to to do that. So that's definitely a part of it. Uh, But the other part is that, uh, you know, if you are somebody that uh, is an atheist, uh, then, and you're really, it's like a subset of atheism, which I would call like materialist, um, as in they only believe in what they can observe and see and touch. And it's really just the material world period. In a sense, they are sawing off the branch that they're standing on because mm. what is that thought, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. The thoughts themselves, mathematics, like, the rules that govern the behavior of atoms and even like all of physics, those are metaphysical concepts, right? They come from mathematics. They, they, Mm -hmm. the equations that you make uh, for, you know, gravitation or electrodynamics or whatever, they, they are all sort of described in the language of math, which come with sort of first principles there. Um, So you can't sort of bootstrap any sort of coherent worldview without some metaphysic. And mm. the thing is, w- when you're a nihilist, it's it, it starts with the metaphysic of there is no meaning, and that's that that's what you kind of build a very dark worldview around, mm-hmm. uh, rather than there exists these things and then you can derive uh, various things using logic, which is what all of the ancient philosophers did, mm-hmm. right? Like from, from Plato, Aristotle, everybody, like this is what they spent their time on. This, this is the job of philosophy is to logically derive based on what they can know, um, you know, certain truths about the metaphysical world and the physical world as a result of you know, using reason, using, mm-hmm. uh, you know, logos, uh, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a excellent point. And it's occurring to me too, that, you know, empiricism, I guess it has this shortcoming that it cannot disentangle causation and correlation. You know, I've seen, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of these data sets where it's like the number of movies Kevin Bacon has appeared in, and it's somehow correlated to, you know, swimming pool deaths or some, you know, like some (laughs) completely 
disconnected phenomenon, but they're correlated somehow. But we only know mm-hmm. that that it's correlation and not causation because there's some a priori knowledge under there, right? That we mm-hmm. we presume that um, you know an actor's appearance in movies can't influence drownings or something. Like that. There's there's an assumption built into it. So it's kind of like what assumptions are we selecting? And they have to be those that adhere uh, according to reason, I guess, or that emerge according to reason, as you're saying. So the other thing this throws into disarray in my mind is that, especially through the materialist view, that inorganic reality is purely cause and effect relationships, Mm. yet somehow that gives rise to consciousness. So I think a lot of the atheist materialist viewpoint is that there's no free will as a result of that, right? That we are just deterministic phenomenon emerging from a deterministic universe. But that view, I mean, not only does it, it's very disquieting to think that like, Oh, I'm just, you know, nothing matters. I'm just unfolding in time. Everything's already determined, but it also contradicts economics, I think too, because, Mm. you know, the principle, the first axiom in, Austrian economics is that man must act, which implies, you know, purpose or or goal setting. Mm. And if you don't have free will, then you can't have any of those things. Mm. Yeah. And that, that's one of the things that I think um, Austrian economics takes into account, whereas Keynesian economics does not. So Austrian economics is uh, rather humble, right? It's, it's sort of like, okay, People do things according to their own values, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There are some things that we can say are common. People generally prefer things earlier than later if it's the same thing. Uh, People want more of it if it's useful to them um, and and things like that. But Keynesian economics does exactly what I, I think implicitly, actually, um, makes that assumption, like you said, where People don't have free will. You have homo economicus, mm-hmm. uh, the rational, per- and that, that's that's how they treat everybody. Um, and this is why you get ridiculous arguments from Keynesians saying, well, you know, if you have deflation, no one's ever going to spend because mm-hmm. that's what homo economicus would do. And of course, you treat everyone like homo economicus instead of individual actors that actually has, uh, you know, have dreams and you know, needs and different life situations, and they have different desires and, and things like that. Instead, you treat everybody as sort of like an atom of, mm-hmm. you know, like some uh, oxygen or something like that and say, okay, well, this is the reaction that we expect. That's, that, that's the, flaw, the major flaw in Keynesian economics is this sort of treatment of people as if they were atoms and um, seeing and trying to treat them as equations and saying, well, they all are supposed to act this way and therefore we have to have this policy. And it, it throws out a lot of the knowledge in the economy because you just sort of assume away the individuality of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. Um... Yeah. And really that's, that's a good point too, that physics, that is one of the the sciences or disciplines that was made so powerful through empiricism. Mm. Um, but you know, it's physics itself is based on these constants, these deterministic aspects where whatever water freezes at zero degrees or boils at a hundred degrees Celsius. Um, 
And that this is where perhaps that physics envy that people often talk about in Keynesian economics, where physics was so successful with us that economics attempted to adopt the methods and procedures of this natural science. The problem being, of course, there are no constants in human action, right? There are no, there is no water freezes at zero and boils at a hundred. That doesn't exist. Everything is um, individualized, right? Everything's subjective to the individual actor who could have any number of thoughts, desires, values, et cetera. Um, so I want to read, I'll read another excerpt here. And the author Hoppe is now starting to link the fundamental axioms of economics um, and describing them through this lens of, of a priori knowledge. He says, quote, human action is an actor's purposeful pursuit of valued ends with scarce means. No one can purposefully not act. Every action is aimed at improving the actor's subjective well-being above what it otherwise would have been. A larger quantity of a good is valued more highly than a smaller quantity of the same good. Satisfaction earlier is preferred over satisfaction later. Production must precede consumption. What is consumed now cannot be consumed again in the future. And he gives some other examples, but I want to skip ahead a little bit here. And he's still naming off uh, a, a priori deduced truths from really that axiom that man must act. And the next set I think is really important. He says, quote, taxes are an imposition on producers and or wealth owners and reduce production and or wealth below what it otherwise would have been. Interpersonal conflict is possible only if and insofar as things are scarce. No thing or part of a thing can be owned exclusively by more than one person at a time. Completely destroys public property right there. <laughs> <laughs> Democracy, majority rule, is incompatible with private property, individual ownership and rule. No form of taxation can be uniform, which is to say equal, but every taxation involves the creation of two distinct and unequal classes of taxpayers versus tax receiver or consumers. Property and property titles are distinct entities and an increase in the latter without a corresponding increase in the former does not raise social wealth, but leads to a redistribution of existing wealth. Unquote. So, I mean, <laughs> this paragraph he just annihilated uh, democracy, right? He uh, annihilated public property and he annihilated fiat currency there at the end too, or, or monetary expansion, I guess, as being a useful economic tool. Wow. <laughs> this hit me like a ton of bricks, you know? Um, and we don't, there's just no respect for this in, in most modern people's mind in my opinion i don't like we still think we can um you know inflate the money supply to solve problems or pass a uh, taxation a new tax policy that will solve some problem but he's he's annihilating these ideas at their root mm -hmm. and it's just incredible well not, not just incredible but logically deduced <laughs> that, yeah. that, that's that's the yes. real incredible thing Irrefutable. is that he starts from these axioms that i don't think anyone can really argue with 
and then goes down and basically derives, okay, well, taxes do this, and therefore it makes it this this way, and therefore it's unequal. Like, uh, and you you have two classes, and you don't really know which one you're in, or you're not made aware of that. And I mean, the the entire book is basically logically deriving a lot of these things he says in the int- introduction about uh, you know not just taxes, but, you know, a a lot of what we would call like Keynesian dogma, right? Like, which Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, like manipulating the money supply somehow helps people or helps the government or helps society in some way, shape or form and gives a net benefit when really it's robbing Peter to pay Paul. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some money lost in between. So it's like a negative sum game. Uh, It's pushing paper around uh, and, creating lots of rent seekers and bullshit jobs and all this other stuff. Um, that That's what he's arguing against. And he's doing it from a priori knowledge, from, uh, from, from the standpoint, not of empiricism, but from rationalism. And the thing is, when empiricists hear that, they go, well, no, those things are kind of meaningless. And that that's his point, is that when they say that, they're deeply confused. Like they, mm-hmm. they don't like take human nature at all into account and kind of, like you said, treat economics like physics as if they're like everyone acts the same and behaves the same and that you can predict, um, you know, what, what, you know, doing one thing will do and uh, will will do to something else in the economy. And this number will cause that number to go up. And then this, um, there, there's no real uh, like grounding for their reasoning. It's just based on observation, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's based on okay, we think this might happen, and of course, because there's no grounding, there is a strong tendency towards uh, you know reasoning towards whatever it is that you want to be true rather than what actually is true. If you reason from first principles, then you get one set of conclusions. But if you reason from what you emotionally want to be true, um, you get stuff like modern monetary theory. We can print mm. as much as we want and nothing bad will happen, right? Like that's more or less what MMT is. And that that's where Keynesianism leads is because it's purely empirical and there is no grounded metaphysic, you know, people bring along their own assumptions and say, okay, well, then that's what we're going to do. And it's it's it becomes the opposite of rationalism when in the absence of some rational rules or some um you know like logic or logos or reason um you know what often happens is that you substitute it with your feelings or mm-hmm. with what you want to be true with emotion and hey the, we we think this should be true and uh, and that comes from another whole code of uh, ethics that is very strange because for uh, the people that only ha- uh, believe for materialists that only believe in physical reality, like how do you even come up with an ethics? Ethics itself is a metaphysical concept, but somehow they come up with their own. They project their own desires into. Keynesianism, which has no like goals or purposes uh, at, at all or any 
sort of metaphysic to go along with it. And that that ends up setting Keynesian policy, which is to say that it's really rationalization for what they wanted to do anyway. Yeah, that that's super interesting that the lack of rationalism, the lack of this anchoring leads to just a infinite rationalization of whatever they do, right? They do whatever mm. they want to do and they can just rationalize it. And the way I'm thinking about this is there's this almost like an unmooring from the absolute, right? They're, mm. they're ignoring um, these fundamental pillars into reality that we can stake with reason. Mm. And when you don't have any context to something that's unshakable or unmovable, it's just, you're in postmodernism, right? Everything's relativistic. Mm. Um, I'm reminded here too of the Fed, how they always say, you know, we did this, things weren't, you know, it didn't work out as planned, but it would have been so much worse had we not acted. <laughs> and there's just no way to refute that, right? Because you can't know what would have happened in some alternative reality. There's no counterfactual. So the fact they're unmoored from rationalism lets them just say and rationalize and do whatever they want. Hmm. Whereas this, you know, approach that the author, you know, a priori rationalism, it's much more like a mathematical proof. Hmm. Right. He's saying like, these are things that we cannot, uh, we can't move with reason. Like no matter which way you look at these things, like man must act, you can't not hmm. act. And from that you're deducing these proofs, I guess, if you will, that um, they're anchored in something. Hmm. And, and from that, you know, he's, he's again, in the earlier paragraph, it's like taxes, democracy, I guess we could say statism more generally, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and fiat, these things are socially divisive, splitting the, the mm. social sphere into tax payers and tax consumers. And they're destructive to wealth, right? It's reducing mm. the productivity or wealth we could otherwise create axiomatically. This isn't someone's opinion. Mm. This is like derived from human reason itself. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. The whole thing is really interesting because there you can't prove a negative, right? Like it's yeah. it's kind of like it, this is what would have happened if we didn't and uh, didn't do this, and that's always sort of the justification. And it's interesting in the introduction, he talks about what happened um, 
in World War One, right? Like uh, with, with uh, you know, like Woodrow Wilson coming in and making it an ideological war. And he goes through sort of like the hypothetical of, okay, what if Wilson didn't come in and try to make the world safer democracy? What, what would have happened? And this is one of the more intriguing sort of what ifs, uh, because he basically posits, okay, well, Instead of continuing the war because uh, on an ideological basis, which made peace impossible, at some point both uh, you know warring uh, powers would have come to some compromise and said, "Okay, well, let's end the war now." That's how wars before then more mm-hmm. or less ended. But because of this additional ideological. Um, sort of imperative that came in as a result of Wilson's participation in the war, it made it so that like you had to humiliate and destroy the opponent instead of letting them live. And so mm-hmm. among other things, Germany was no longer a monarchy. Um, you know, the Austria was no longer a monarchy. Um, Russia probably doesn't go socialist. So like two of the most evil, um, you know, regimes, uh, you know, Nazism and, uh, you know, communist Russia wouldn't have like been able to rise. Now, that's not to say that something else might not have happened, Mm -hmm. but his counterfactual there to me is a lot more compelling than say, oh, if we didn't bail out these banks in 2008, it would have been a far worse crisis. Worse for who? Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. Like, and how do you define worse or better when you're an empiricist? There's exactly. no easy way to uh, justify. I mean, you, you can justify anything by saying it's better, but you get to define better than, well, <laughs> yeah, like better for me, right? Like better for the banks, better for rich people, better for the people in power. Um, but I think fairly, uh, there, I, I think it's fair to say there were some, a lot of losers, um, especially the people that are going to pay the cost later or people that have been, uh, that have since, uh, you know, uh, like suffered from significant amounts of inflation and maybe even hyperinflations in some mm-hmm. third world countries and so on. So yeah, that, that sort of reasoning is very difficult to refute, but it, uh, it, it makes for you know, easy propaganda, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that that's sort of like coming back full circle to this democracy thing. That's, uh, that's in a sense why he thinks like democracy kind of sucks because you, you have this public property that, that, uh, you know, combined with Keynesian economics, you can justify doing whatever with, um, and, you know, rationalize doing whatever you want with, uh, without benefiting necessarily, you know, anybody or really destroying capital, destroying value. Um, and that, that's his argument essentially. Yeah. That, so there's a key point there is that empiricism can only tell us what, you know, quote unquote is again, just an observation of reality. There's no ought there there's no any implication derived on human action would just be subjective so how can you say how can the the fed or anyone else say that this is worse or this is better right mm-hmm. through an empirical lens you cannot make you cannot make a moral proclamation from an empirical standpoint 
you're, that would be deriving an ought from an is, and that that does not work. Um, I'm I'm curious about this. So, World War One and World War Two becoming ideological wars increased their scope and duration and severity. Clearly, war tended to be waged more pragmatically in the past when it was waged from the balance sheet or the, the, the war chest of the combatants. Hmm. So they'd go to war, war's very expensive, you run out of money, you cut a deal, right? Hmm. But with access to fiat currency, the printing press, you could now plunder the entire savings of the hmm. underlying productive economy, right? You wouldn't just, hmm. it wasn't just yourself you could bankrupt and you'd have to cut a deal, you could bankrupt the entire citizenry. Is that, so I'm trying to figure out, and maybe it's a reciprocal feedback loop, but I was trying to figure out the cause and effect between this shift towards ideological warfare, but was that enabled by, you know, fiat currency and propaganda or Mm -hmm. the reverse or both? Like these things just come up together. The war became more ideological because the means of financing was different. Yeah, I, I I think it's hard to say the cause and effect there. I, I I believe that fiat money definitely had a giant role in escalating the conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I also take his point that the presence of democracy, this this idea that um, you know you, you're you know it was Wilson's um, you know proclamation. We want to make the world safer democracy, and as he points out. Post-World War I, all these monarchies went away and they were replaced with democracies. In a sense, it's almost like a new system that got implemented. And uh, part of that, uh, part of selling this new system to everybody was uh, sort of giving it a moral superiority over Mm -hmm. monarchy, right? Like, um, and that... um, and what, once you make it moral uh, and say, okay, th- this is clearly superior and we need to get, like, it definitely becomes, like, uh, ideological as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for, for the monarchies, then it became like a, a survival thing. And for democracies, it's, you know, we're never going to negotiate with you. It's just you're either going to become a democracy or uh, or we're going to lose like it, it there there's no like in between there's no compromise um that, which which made world war 1 world war 2 even to some degree vietnam and iraq and uh, you know all these uh, um you know foreign adventures that the us uh, military tends to go on um you know very very difficult cuz you you can't sort of like save face on any of that stuff. Like uh, one of the things I was uh, commenting on a while back is, you know, U.S. is involved in a lot of different conflicts and they have a really hard time getting out of any of them because for a democracy, it's always a war of principle. It's never really a war of territory. Uh, Whereas in a monarchy, it's a war of territory. And if you can't get the territory or if it costs too much to go conquer that territory, you just don't do it. And that that's that's when it's an economic calculation, it's a lot easier to justify getting out. Uh, But, you know, like the U.S. is still involved in Iraq. And, you know, you know, you know what happened in Afghanistan, just the whole thing freaking collapsed and we had to leave after 20 years. 
what the hell were we doing, doing that for 20 years? Why, why didn't we get out earlier? Right. Well, it was because we couldn't sort of like save face. We had, we, we had to make sure that the Afghanis were, you know, a democracy of some kind before we could leave. And this is the doctrine that Wilson sort of like pioneered with, we must make the world safe for democracy. And I would argue this is part of, uh, well, this is the beginning of uh, sort of like the modern te uh, like technique of controlling people and like sort of getting people to view things a certain way. Uh, what we would also call propaganda is a tool to manipulate that. Um, but democracy it, from that sort of view is a way to control people, right? Or, or at least our particular flavor of democracy, which we call representative democracy. Um, and like, you know, from Wilson on, it's it's a very different beast than pre-Wilson. Um, I, I would argue it's a, it's a very specific flavor where you have the illusion of control by voting, uh, but like it's actually controlled by a cabal of, you know, uh, elites that, you don't, you know, you just sort of are given like two choices that you don't like, and that's who you have to vote for. That that sort of thing. Yeah, this. The, the, so I think Mises made this point in Human Action, hmm. approximately that democracy emerged as sort of like this, almost like an emulation of the market economy, right? Because in a pure market economy, that's actually democratic you're buying and selling and based on your actions, the market economy is responding, right? You buy a house, it makes more houses, sell a car, it makes less cars. I think, and I don't want to misstate it here, so you can check me, but I think his rough argument was that as the market economy emerged, status needed to rebrand themselves in a way <laughs> to kind of emulate the, the market economy. So they gave people this illusion of, you know, control via democracy. Hmm. And so in that sense, it was kind of like this new moral camouflage that statism put on. And I guess communism was one even after that, that it was theorized at some point we wouldn't need capitalism at all. Right. We would just be <laughs> in this communistic utopia. Um, is that how you see it as well? That the there's just people that have been in a position of asymmetric power, and they have to they have to propagandize to their tax base effectively, um, and they're sort of adapting to the times, right? We're going through this industrial age. The market economy is generating all this wealth. Statism had to adapt alongside it just to um, remain relevant. Yeah, um, I would say so. There, there's. Um like a framework by which you can uh, sort of determine whether or not like democracy is what Jacques and Lull will call a technique for like human control. Uh, like it's, it's a, it's a whole system. All right. And there are certain things that the system does to perpetuate itself. And in a sense um, that's kind of what's happened. It's, it's taken over and it kind of goes and it perpetuates itself at, after a certain amount of time through the incentives that it has. Mm. And as Hoppe points out, like in, in the book, you, you have, um, you, you know, uh, uh, everybody thinking that they can be president, right? Like th this is like mm -hmm. one of the things that you, uh, you say when you have a kid is, Oh, you know, you can, you can someday be president. Um, and it, it sort of, uh, like, 
hinders sort of this class consciousness. There, there are rulers and there are the ruled. Mm-hmm. That is clearly the case by any measure. And if you've looked at the last year and a half, that's, this is very, very clear. But it, it, democracy particularly like sort of muddies the waters. And that, that's part of the propaganda is, is getting us to believe that we could be part of the rulers. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we're, we're not as harsh on the rulers. We're not mm-hmm. as like demanding of the rulers uh, we're not as, uh, you know, um, you know, we can't even identify rights. them. Yeah, we, there, there, there's a whole sense of thinking that we're we're all in this together or something like that. And that that that's the sort of like magical propaganda that we've all been kind of fed. Mm-hmm. Um of course, like real life is has never been like that. There are people that are stronger, that are faster, that are smarter, or whatever, mm-hmm. and correspondingly the opposite. Um, but but there's this illusion of equality that that sort of like permeates through any society that adopts the system, um, where at a certain point it becomes sort of like a, a demand or an entitlement uh, by everybody, and this is mm-hmm. the justification for a lot of the weird programs that we have um, that that are sort of like government based. And it's also the justification for printing lots of money and creating social programs and things of that nature. But but it really, it's, it's a whole system designed to, well, not necessarily designed, but it, it's a system that wants to perpetuate itself. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, uh, you know, part of it is propaganda or getting us to see the best parts of it and not any of the bad parts of it, which is why this book in particular was so controversial at the time. And it hits you like a ton of bricks because Mm -hmm. in a sense, we've all been swimming in that water of Mm -hmm. democracy is amazing. And it's this great thing and all that. Um, And like to, for, you know, Hoppe to like sort of red pill everybody and say, actually, it's not that great. You know, there, there are all these things that it doesn't do very well. And, you know, we're, we're sort of blind to them because we're in that, in in the midst of that propaganda. I mean, like people, like I I was at the Oslo freedom forum a couple of weeks ago and, you know, like people there, you know, think democracy is great, right? Like we need to make the world safer democracy. That, that, that sort of thing is a common sort of sentiment without, Mm -hmm necessarily looking at all of the downsides. And to be clear, what Hoppe says in the introduction is, I think like almost all like governance of that kind is bad, but mm-hmm. like monarchy is probably the least bad of these. He, he I think yeah. what you would call an anarcho-capitalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like there, there are certain flaws that we're just completely blind to because of the sort of like spin everything has been put on there and that's that's what we've been brainwashed with to be frank. right yeah no yeah well said um i'm thinking here that it's it seems to me like statism thrives on this illusion right it's always it's always proffering this illusion of group identity above the individual somehow some way right whether it's oh we're all american or we're all communist utopia it it is really deceiving 
the individual into believing there's some, and it's kind of preying on our compassion in a way, because I guess we want mm. to live for something bigger than ourselves. Mm. So they just try to fill that statist or propagandist, try to fill that void with saying, here it is, you know, here is, you are part of the motherland or the fatherland or you're American, something mm. to that effect to where you become almost possessed by that ideology. Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, we're living in that. To your point, people at the Freedom Forum, (laughs) (laughs) they do believe in democracy, right? Because as you said, that's the water we've been swimming in. So, I mean, we're living through this system that is a priori flawed in very deep and significant ways. Yet people revere this ideology and they're propagating this ideology on behalf of the system. And I mean, how do we break free of that? It doesn't seem like it's possible to break free of these these group identity ideological possessions until there's some technological change that really like forces a change. Otherwise, people just kind of go on believing um, these falsehoods. Yeah, and this goes back to sort of like um, – why empiricism is much easier to believe or uh, to sort of accept uh, because you don't have to reason through to, hey, like there are some serious fundamental flaws with this sort of way of doing things. Um, Instead, if you do have a group identity, I I think like nationalist is more maybe, I guess, in the part of the populist right. I think maybe on the left, it's more like being a world citizen or something to that Mm, effect, or, you know, like uh, doing things from Mother Earth or something to that effect. And these are sort of like images that were given uh, that uh, sort of like bypass argument, bypass reason. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that that's a much easier way for a lot of people to live. And the and, and the thing is, like, we are in a society that is absolutely inundated with images that sort of bypass argument altogether. And, like, mm-hmm. and this is one of the things that Keynesian economics does, by the way, is lots of charts, lots of numbers. And it just sort of confuses you into thinking that whatever it is that they're saying is fine. Um, and this this is like the stark contrast between like Keynesian and Austrian writing. If you read anything Keynesian, like none of it makes sense, right? Like you, you read Keynes, for example, and he like brings up animal spirits as if he's like defined everything. And it's like, he didn't say anything about it before. And suddenly it's like, okay, what the hell are animal spirits? It's like, there's no logic or sequence to any of it. Right. It's, it's just kind of a confused mumbo jumbo kind of thing. Whereas with, uh, you know, Austrian economics, it's its very logically derived. It, it is based on reason versus sort of like uh, what, what tends, what empiricism tends towards, which is because there's no logic or reason or first principles to reason through, it is literally here is what, what we think is good. And we're going to show you an image of it. And it's a chart going up and to the right. It is um you know, the, these things that we don't want, or, you know, like here, here's your group identity or something, something to that effect. And that becomes a substitution for a, a logically derived belief system and an ethic system. Instead, it is, you are not reasoned into these things. You are sort of like emoted into them. You're, you're 
made to feel good for um, doing X, Y, or Z. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, and th- this is the crux of propaganda is mm-hmm. it, it changes your behavior and you feel guilty or you feel good based on what you do that conforms to the system or not. Um, so like a very common thing in dem- democratic societies is this sort of moral imperative to go vote. And if you examine it logically, it doesn't make any sense because <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it like gives you the illusion of control, but you actually have none. And you're, even if your vote made a difference, it, it would probably be taken away from you um, one way or the other. So it, it's a, it's a very different sort of way of looking at it. And I think most people, especially in a very emotional, like image inundated society like we have, um, and it's gotten much worse in the last 20 years. It used to be just television and and movies or something like that. But now you add like YouTube and cell phones and all this other, and and like advertising everywhere. It's it's gotten like 10 times worse. There's a lack of respect for reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's almost like a disregard for reason. There's, it's like, it's like, why, why do I even need to think of this? I would rather not have to think through all of the consequences and derive these truths. Rather, I would just feel good about X and that's it, right? Like if it make if if I if the only way I can feel good is to go vote or to tell other people to go vote or to uh tell people we need to, you know, uh be good world citizens and like not pollute the environment or you know, reduce carbon, whatever it is, um, that becomes sort of like the substitute for a reason-based metaphysic, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Absolutely. makes a ton of sense that, and again, the, the visual I have is just this unmooring, right? When you're not anchored to reality via reason, you're mm-hmm. just in the realm of everything's relative to everything else. You can literally rationalize anything. There's infinite uh, descriptions, right? There's, there's no objective. There's no objective anchoring to coalesce our efforts around. It's just, it's a total, it's just a madhouse. So, and the voting thing is very interesting too, because you're right. It doesn't matter because you're ultimately just voting to perhaps put a different representative in this position that is just going to go on with taxation, right? Taxation is going to continue to create, again, logically derived. Taxation creates two different, it bifurcates society into basically the the rulers and ruled or the taxpayers and tax consumers. Very easy or very difficult to disentangle who that is at any one point, but it, again, a priori does create this. And it's, Again, this moralistic camouflage the status is is dawning, I think, in an attempt to short circuit reasoning. So they're mm-hmm. kind of like they're betting on people, most people, let's say, to take the path of least resistance. To your earlier point, it's very expensive to reason, right? And if you just mm-hmm. if you think about reading through Austrian economics mm-hmm. versus Keynesian economics, like Austrian economics is it's dense, it's logical, it, it's it can be a a hard slug to get through it, but it's logically coherent. Hmm. You read Keynesian economics, when you read it, it makes no sense at all. I mean, it, 
kind of has this veneer of difficulty, but it just, there's not, there's no logical coherence, but they supplement the lack of coherence with just chart after chart, after chart, after chart, you know? (laughs) And I mean, that is, we have gotten away from this respect for reason. It seems to me because deception is so profitable, Mm. right? They're just getting, they're trying to buy the resignation or the passivity of the taxpayers ultimately. Mm. Or the ruled, right? Which is what we are. Uh, but yeah, I, I want to uh, like think about that a little bit because it, it really is sort of like short circuiting reason. And, uh, and the thing about images uh, is that they are very easy to lie with. There is a deception to it. And there is um, sort of like a, a trust in, in, in these images, uh, in, in these sort of like emotionally charged things mm-hmm. rather than reason. Uh, and this is, this is the contrast like Jacques Lowell makes in uh, in the humiliation of the word, it, it, it's that you know we're we're being bombarded with images. We we uh, and we end up sort of trusting in these images mm-hmm. uh, in lieu of thinking. And th- this is the Christian sin of idolatry when you're mm-hmm. trusting in an image to give you the truth rather than logos, the word, right? Like to mm-hmm. uh, to actually go through you know, some, some logical way of deriving something um, that's, again, very expensive, very time-consuming, and it is often very subtle and requires, uh, you know, like uh, a lot of time. But, you know, an image is a lot easier to trust. And th- mm-hmm. this is the fundamental, like, sort of human conflict that we have to have uh, in order to like live a good life in Christianity is, or, or to live a godly life is to follow reason, follow the word mm-hmm. instead of idolatry of going towards and trusting sort of like an image, which mm-hmm. is highly charged emotionally uh, and bypasses this capacity for thought that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's something very sticky here in my mind, too, because Mm. a couple of things. One, I'm reminded as a a CFO in the past, one of my mentors taught me that he who controls the chart controls the narrative. So when you're giving like a board level presentation, you can choose to highlight whatever set of data you want, right? From this, Mm. again, this infinite, the infinite possibilities of what you can chart and explain about the business over the past quarter. Whoever's deciding what chart to put up controls the narrative they're presenting to the board, right? So, Mm. um, and to your second point, your point about images, you know, there's the old saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. So Mm. it's almost like people are just seeking out that cognitive expedient versus Mm. doing the work of like actually Mm. starting with an axiom and deducing toward uh, a truth themselves. They would rather just follow some opinion maker. And and in fact, this is kind of necessary in life too, right? Like we can't be experts in everything. 
So we need to defer to, you know, a guy to fix our car or the doctor to help with our health and all this, but this, there's some opportunity there, I guess, for deception that it seems like it's being leveraged by. Yeah. I mean, I I think I would call that a moral hazard. Whenever Mm -hmm. you have to trust somebody, that's when you have a moral hazard, uh, that, that, that person runs a moral hazard, your car mechanic can totally screw you over by doing unnecessary repairs. And many do, um, or not fixing the thing properly or doing it on the cheap and charging you a lot of money. Um, there are all sorts of motivations that sort of occur as a result of like sort of placing your trust. But th- this to me is the big difference between Bitcoin and altcoins. Bitcoin is hard to understand. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of sort of like axioms that you have to go through and uh, to understand money itself, mm-hmm. the current system, why the current system's broken and what Bitcoin does, verifying all of that stuff is true. Um, and then you can trust in, the, in, in how the system works because you've examined it versus altcoins, which are almost always personality driven, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. Vitalik Buterin, Charles mm-hmm. Hodgkinson, or Brad Garlinghouse or mm-hmm. Roger Ver or whoever. Um, and it, it, it's all about the image. It's all about, okay, like, can you get more people towards this thing and get them to feel good about owning it? And this is why certain world, all, like a lot of people feel good about like a Shibu dog or whatever. And that's, that's why Dogecoin pumps, right? Like it's, it's all image. It's nothing rational. It, it, and in a sense, I guess what I'm saying is Bitcoin is logos, all of this other stuff that's uh, all, all coins are, are, are like idols or images or something like that. And I would also put fiat money in that bucket. It's, it's, a, it, it's an image in the same way that uh, like, it, it's almost like not even an image, right? Like, um, so a simulacrum is a copy without an original. Um, and the dollar used to be representing gold, uh, but it no longer does. So it's it's an image without an original. That that it, it's it's become like a representation or an image that's completely lost meaning. And in a sense, it's a it's a lot like postmodern art, right? Like it, it doesn't represent anything. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing that it's trying to look like, uh, which is what representational art, right? Up until mm-hmm. I don't know, like me, Picasso was right at the border, but post Picasso, it's like definitely like it doesn't have to look like anything. It's mm-hmm. it's just, you know, Jackson Pollock paintings of, uh, you know, uh, spots or whatever. And you you notice that with every one of those, they require some sort of word explanation. And that's mm-hmm. what every art major tells you is, well, you have to know the history. Like, it looks like my son could have done it, but it's like. <laughs> But, but well, you have to know the history and all that stuff. They're they're trying to inject logos back right. because there's nothing that it's representing. There there's literally nothing there. Um, so to get back to my point, like fiat money is in a sense an image, and it's and it, it's like paradoxically an image without an original. Um, the original. So the link to the original, which was gold, yeah, no longer exists. So 
it, it's it's just kind of a representation. It's it's something that you find comfort in because the system itself has sort of like propagandized us into believing it. Whereas if you go through reason, you very quickly find out it shouldn't be worth anything. It doesn't. Right. It isn't worth anything, and it it, it has no basis. 